This episode is brought to you in part by the following Government of Canada partners. Natural Products Canada, the driving force behind Canada's natural product innovation cluster through support, guidance, introductions, programs, and investment. Hi, I'm Aditi, and this is Brett. And this is Full Stack Food, a show about food and innovation and $1.50 hot dogs, which Aditi loves. Love. I mean, I love $1.50 hot dogs. I love dollar hot dogs, maybe even $2. All hot dogs are good. What's your all's favorite hot dog? Like, what's your hot dog of choice? It has to be a New York hot dog. Dirty water, New York? Is that what you're talking about? A dirty water. I mean, it's got to be from, I mean, that was my first hot dog experience, and I think it was four. I used to live across the street from Gray's Papaya in New York, and we loved that. We would always get late night hot dogs. Gray's is so good. All the papaya. You didn't answer the question, Steph. What's your favorite hot dog? Well, Gray's Papaya, I would say, or there's a, a place here in Minneapolis called Tenant that has both a sit-down, like, six-course prefix, however you pronounce that, Italian restaurant. And then next door, they have a bar where all they sell for food. They have, like, five cocktails, and then you can get a hot dog or you can get a platter of bread and butter with pate. And their hot dog is incredible. The combination that everybody thinks about, pate and hot dogs. Low-brown, highbrow. I like a good classically grilled hot dog. It doesn't really matter where it comes from, but like open fire grill. I prefer grilled to boiled, like the boiled hot dog. I could talk about it all day, but we're not going to, fortunately. We're going to be talking about alt meat products. Have you guys had any alt meat products lately that have been especially convincing? I have to say I haven't. Neither have I. I've had a couple Impossible Burgers recently. They tasted good. They didn't taste exactly like a hamburger, but they were still really delicious, I thought. Well, that brings us to our question of the day, which is, when will fake meat taste like real meat? Part two. You remember that we did this, the part one part in season one, when we looked at Karana, which used jackfruit to make vegan ground pork. And that product, I have to say, was very convincing. It tasted just like real meat. And today we're chatting with Tyler Huggins of Meaty, which uses fermentation to make plant-based meat from mushroom root. Tyler has a fascinating story about growing up on his family's bison ranch, which is kind of surprising. Is it bison or bison? Uh, we'll get into this. <laughs> we do get into it. In the, just throwing that out there, bison or bison. That's right. We did. I completely forgot about that part. Well, first, let's take a look at some of the hot topics trending in food and innovation. First up, Kroger plans to buy Albertsons in a deal worth nearly $25 billion. The deal would bring together the two largest supermarket chains in the country. The combined company would employ more than 700,000 workers and reach 85 million customers. Brett and Steph, I know I'm a grocery store nerd. I love grocery stores. And I worry that this might curb innovation and cool discovery stuff happening at grocery stores. What do you think this means for consumers? I agree. Like, I think that as things get bigger, they tend to get less innovative or it's harder for them to move quickly and be more innovative. It's like moving an aircraft carrier instead of like moving a small ship. So both of them are already huge. So I don't know how much is actually going to affect the world of innovation in retail. I mean, like 700,000 employees is crazy. Like, that's insane. That's crazy. Next, Alaska's snow crab season has been unexpectedly canceled due to the population dwindling. The Bering Sea snow crab season will remain closed through next spring, which could impact hundreds of crabbers and the local economy. The news has alarmed consumers and left experts trying to figure out 
why the population crashed. Brett and Steph, we've talked about alt seafood a lot. Do headlines like this one provide any ammunition for those startups that are focused on recreating seafood? I think certainly from a funding perspective, they do. Of There's this need, there's this consumer desire for seafood that these startups are trying to answer. We go back, though, to Brett's favorite question of are consumers willing to pay more for all seafood? And maybe if there's something that they really want that's not available, they will. But I still think that cost is going to be the big driver rather than scarcity. I'm really interested to see like what impact this has in other shell-based commodities, you know, so like does lobster get much more expensive. Stone crab is a winter-based crab product that comes out of like the F- Caribbean, like Florida. Those prices have gone through the roof over the last three, four years. Like it's going to, you know, like something like this doesn't just affect snow crab. It affects the prices of other products that are similar. And yeah, it's a hundred percent a good thing for alt seafood, a hundred percent a good thing for alt seafood companies. And I imagine you're going to, it's going to come out that one of the reasons for the crash is like warming waters, warming temperatures. And so it's also going to be probably a, an argument for, Hey, we need to be more thoughtful about how we treat our planet and rightfully so. Yeah. We've definitely heard climate change come up in the course of this conversation. Well, finally, Gen Z loves junk food. That's one of the headlines from a recent survey by morning consult, topping the list of favorite snack foods of Gen Zers. M&M's, Doritos, hmm. Kit Kat and Oreo all made the top 10. Some of the other highest ranked brands include Cheetos, Sprite, and Skittles. Guys, turns out Gen Z, they're just like us. I feel like that could have been a list from, you know, 1995 or our show. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Do either of you have like a favorite snack that is new to market in the last 20 years that's like, oh, you know, I just need this new thing? The one thing that I really love, which is nothing new to the world necessarily, but is new to being able to get is like dried mango or other dried fruits that I just don't remember being able to get that really easily as a child. And now it's such a great snack. Maybe I'm old. One of my kids started eating like kale chips and seems to really like kale chips. I feel like that's kind of new. Like that's like probably last 20 years. And that's such a win as a parent too. (laughs) Yeah. The snacks I eat are tried and true. Been around forever. A lot of kids here enjoy seaweed. Well, coming up, we'll talk to Tyler Huggins about his journey from his family's bison ranch to creating plant-based meat. Tyler Huggins is not a man of many surprises. Rather, he's a study of consistency. The things that matter to him most today are the same things he cared about as a child, as a teenager, and as a young adult. For one, he loves nature. And second, he wants to devote his life to preserving it. Tyler feels a kinship with land, trees, air, and water that feels core to who he is, and it drives what he does. In college and grad school, he studied ecology, biology, and engineering, marrying his love for the outdoors and living things with his passion for solving problems. Tyler also studied grizzly bears when he took up a side hustle as a wilderness ranger with the Forest Service and also worked on water issues. After college, he started a land restoration company, and later, as a PhD student, he landed on mycelium as a sustainable way to make structures from battery components to leathers and even building materials. After a brief flirtation with air filtration, 
Tyler realized that ultimately, he could have the biggest impact on the world by making food sustainably. And that's how Meaty was born. Today, Meaty, which makes plant-based meat from mushrooms, appears to be a raging success. It's backed by celebrity chefs, it just entered a partnership with Sprouts, and it's building a mega ranch to meet insatiable demand for its products. But for Tyler, the man of few surprises, none of these endeavors are far flung from his childhood growing up next to a national forest. I grew up in Montana, a small little logging town north of Missoula called Sealy Lake. You know, my high school was 45 students. And it was pretty cool. I lived on a on bordering national forest. So I was the one sort of, you know, mountain man nerd that had like the field identification book. I would just take off for hours, sometimes days, and cataloging plants and hiking up riverbeds looking for rare mushrooms. And that's kind of where I, you know, sort of fell in love with with nature and the woods and plants and fungi and animals. So you were into all of this stuff as a kid. Tell me a little bit about your parents and what they did. Yeah. So my mom worked in retail. She was a front-end manager. My dad kind of did all kinds of different jobs growing up, but was entrepreneurial. Started a like an outdoor store for a little bit, a couple different small businesses, and then ultimately ended up starting a, a grass-fed bison operation. And this was mid-career, right? He was a little bit older by this time? Yeah, honestly, I think it was kind of like a midlife crisis. It was just like, I just want to go work the land. You know, I think we all have that romantic notion of, of being a farmer or a rancher. And someone presented him with this opportunity in the Sandhills in Nebraska. There was this, it was over 3,000 acres of land that could support bison and elk, deer and turkeys. And it's like a sportsman's paradise. And he basically sold everything and put it all into this operation and that they've been running ever since. And it's in the sand hills, which is absolutely gorgeous. Big, rolling, deep hills, deep valleys and, and rolling hills. Gorgeous, gorgeous, super remote, huge track of land as far as the eye can see. And I spent a lot, a lot of time out there. It was great. How old were you at this point? So that was when I just got out of undergraduate in college. And I had started my first company, which was a land restoration company. I was doing like forest health improvement work. I went out there and that's you know, I spent years restoring the land and working to improve the property that he had. And you were obviously free labor for your dad, but you were also learning a ton, I would assume, right? Working summers and things like that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we would, I mean, 16 hour days working on the land, studying the health. And then also that's where I got a lot of exposure to big ag. So large, huge cattle operations, large corn, soybean operations, and spent a lot of time figuring out how does this system even work? It was quite fascinating. And that inspired me to really step up my sort of impact in the world and thinking a lot bigger because the challenges that I saw that we face as a society were, were huge. Yeah. Did you consider kind of going into livestock after that experience or trying to really, and you are affecting it obviously, but I mean, bison for sure. I still have a dream, you know, once Meaty is, is up and, you know, stable, I would love a little side hustle in the, in the bison business. It, they're just such cool animals and they know how to naturally move on the land and they're, they're much more sustainable and they're gorgeous. They're just fun to hang out with. So, you know, I had a lot of interest there for sure. Quick follow-up, bison or bison? Just asking for all our North Dakota friends. 
Well, I thought you were going to say buffalo or bison, because that's the other one. It's like, no, actually, buffalo are like water buffalo in Africa. These are bison. What were you studying in college, though, at this time when you said that you come home from undergrad? What had you studied in college? Ecology and biology. During college, I was also working with the Forest Service as a field ecologist. So studying rangeland, grassland ecosystems, the effect that we're having on it, judging health and certain issues there. And did you think that was going to lead to a career path? I mean, you seem fully ensconced in that life. You know, sometimes I look back like, man, that would have been, you know, I was able to study like grizzly bears and wildlife and spend a lot of time outdoors and get paid for it. But I just had a burning desire. I saw big issues that we were facing. You know, I just love being hands-on and solving problems, not necessarily studying them. And so I knew I needed to take a different path to actually, you know, take a proactive approach. Is that what prompted you to go back to grad school? After starting my own company, working on large-scale land remediation projects, it still just wasn't big enough. I mean, I just was very aware that the scale and the size of, of some of the challenges that we're facing with climate change and land management practices and just and sustainability, I knew I needed to take an approach that would have a larger impact, not only in the U.S., but global. And so I went back to graduate school. I did get my PhD, but that wasn't necessarily the intention. The point was to learn how to develop and build and then ultimately commercialize advanced technologies. What did you study in grad school? So I got my PhD in environmental engineering. So I studied mostly water and wastewater treatment, actually. And you went into grad school with that plan of, I'm going to learn to see how I could make the biggest impact from a social justice ecology perspective. And so as you're nearing the end of this program, how are you thinking about that goal and what you plan to build? I was always doing side hustles during graduate school, taking a small bit of technology that we had developed around like wastewater treatment and resource recovery from water filtering and seeing if I could start a business. Luckily, I had a, an amazing advisor, Dr. Ren. He's now at Princeton. And he supported me during this time and said, you know what, like, just go for it. As long as you're getting your job done, you seem very motivated. I'm here to, to help you along this process. So he gave me the ability to kind of try my entrepreneurial sort of efforts on the side. And I kept trying, kept trying. And luckily in the end, right towards the end is when I started working with mycelium or mushroom roots and how can we manipulate and produce things of high value for society. And you were telling me that it could have taken various forms. Now you're doing meaty and alternative meat, but you were looking at a variety of other form factors, right? Yeah. So I was lucky enough to meet my co-founder, who is my co-founder today, Justin Whiteley, who was also getting his PhD, and he was studying advanced battery materials. He had a very similar philosophy as me, as you know, was in graduate school to develop and then commercialize technologies. And so we both were graduating at the same time, and we said, hey, you know, let's combine our skill sets. I can kind of grow really cool things using microbes with no energy, no waste, super sustainable, you know, materials, you know, batteries, like what should we grow? And so we started off with batteries. Actually, we showed that you could grow advanced batteries, same that's in your phone using biology, using mycelium. And that seems mind blowing to me and people who are listening. Can you just connect the dots for us? I'm so confused right now. I'm not smart enough to be in this conversation. I'm going to go. Can you please connect the dots for those of us who don't have our PhDs in this stuff? Tell us a little bit about how you get batteries from mycelium. Which side of the mushroom is the positive? Which side's the negative? Well, almost all lithium-ion batteries have graphite. 
that's like carbon, pure carbon. The graphite that we use in our phone is mined, similar to like oil. It's been in the earth for a long time. We just mine it. Well, you can make highly pure carbon in other ways, including with biomass. You can just burn it essentially. So we would use mycelium or mushroom roots to produce these very intricate structures. And then we would essentially burn it, all the volatile components, and leave behind this porous, pure carbon structure. There's a whole field of research and study on this particular subject. People have spent their whole lives making porous carbon materials because they can do all kinds of great things for us, including store energy. And we were able to produce sophisticated structures that people normally spend tons of energy and resources and chemicals to be able to produce. And we just grew it naturally, no energy, no waste required. How did you get into mycelium in the first place? Because I feel like it's all the rage right now, but it wasn't quite as common a couple of years ago. I had studied mycelium, the interaction of mycelium and plants when I was an undergraduate. I mean, it's present in grasslands, right? And so I kind of, I was very aware of it and it was really fringe at that time. I mean, there was very few research and publications. It was kind of like, ah, we don't know what's going on there. It's fungus, it's weird. And as I started working in my PhD and working with different microbes, I always had that seed planted in me. As I started wanting to grow like different materials, I was like, oh man. And I remember just coming across in a research paper of seeing a photograph of mycelium And I was like, that's it. If you can control that, you could produce anything from battery electrodes to leathers to building materials. I mean, you could grow any structure, really. And you're right. At that time, there was nobody doing any other work like this. You know, I thought it was pretty cool. And I was able to publish and able to get government grant money because it was very novel. Now it's so cool. I love how great minds were thinking alike. And now it's like a whole category of its own. You have all of these alternatives you just mentioned, leather, energy storage, meat, obviously. So how did you go through each option and measure what you're going to end up landing on? I think like most successful companies, it's really just the team and the passion to solve big problems. And so we set that baseline and said, all right, we have this theory that we can use this advanced technology of leveraging biology to solve big problems. And we were kind of agnostic of what problems we solved as long as people really wanted it. That was the key. And that's the key to any sort of business. And so we just started testing what problems can we solve and do people actually wanna pay for that problem to be solved? Started with batteries. You can dig up graphite by you know the truckloads. And they were like, we don't care about sustainable batteries. We just need lots of them. And we need them to be reliable and safe. And so we have proven technology. We're not really interested in that. And so, all right. What about filtering air? What about filtering water? We tried that. Ah, Unfortunately, we just people don't want to pay for clean air, clean water. And then we started seeing that alternative proteins and need to feed 10 billion people. Actually, it was starting to become more and more popular. People were talking about it. We saw the success of Beyond Meat and Impossible. Mm-hmm. And we started recognizing some of the challenges they face. And we're like, well, we can do that. And then obviously, with my background in food and agriculture, It was an easy switch, actually a quite easy pivot. And we knew the whole time that mycelium or mushroom root was super nutritious. So it was always kind of in the things we wanted to try. And then as soon as we did, it was like a rocket ship. People were like, yes, that's a big problem and we want to pay for it. And you have a huge and a great way to solve this problem. So let's go for it. So you found that product market fit. Exactly. Can you go another layer on the technology? So you mentioned like we have this awesome technology. Like what is the technology? Like what actually enables you to do this? One, it's cultivating the mycelium. 
Now that in itself is a novel, but growing it in certain ways to produce certain properties of the mycelium. So for us right now, meaty, super nutritious, complete protein, packed full of all kinds of vitamins and minerals. That depends on how you grow it. Textural properties. So, you know, mycelium can grow in all sorts of different shapes and sizes. We want it to grow a certain way to produce great meat products, color, taste, flavor, all of those things are shaped during the cultivation phase. We can tune it in a bunch of different ways. And the reason why we were so good at it is because we started at a microscopic level. I mean, tuning it to make a battery material was really specific and quite complex. And so we had built this platform essentially of mycelium growth and manipulation. We want it to grow a certain way. We know how to grow it. And so it produces certain properties. And then it's the post-processing. So you grow all this mycelium. How do you then harvest it and retain those properties that you grew? So if you want long fibrous, if you want nutrition, how do you make sure post-harvesting, it's a living organism, nature, how do you actually preserve those properties and produce a material out of it or meat or you know whatever your end product is? So it's kind of two components. What year was this that you had settled on alternative meat? Somewhere around, I think like 2017. And at that point, like you said, Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods were all the rage. And as you pointed out, I mean, there was still definitely more needs to be met because while a lot of people were excited, a lot of consumers were still asking, well, it seems it's with Impossible Foods, there's a GMO there with the heme protein and that isn't a lot of this stuff processed. We want simpler. We need more healthful. So the story seemed to probably take shape. And it seemed like fermentation really blew up after that point. So it seemed like you guys are really early here. And you are, did you already have the patents by this time? We were early. And honestly, when we were pitching investors, they were like, what the heck are you talking about? Uh, for a long time, people were like, you're crazy. This is never going to work. Doesn't make a lot of sense. But the fundamentals, the basic principles, the science and the engineering was really, really strong. It was built off of really strong fundamentals. And we had been spending two years at Argonne National Laboratory, one of the most sophisticated government research labs in the world, developing this core platform. And we could point towards other parts of other industries that had processes that were similar to ours. We were like saying, we can scale this thing. It can be super affordable. It's really efficient. And it's unbelievably nutritious. And so if you looked at the fundamentals, it became very clear and only a few investors and those that are still on our board, I have a lot of admiration for because they saw it. They saw it right away and were like, these are the ones. And they're very experienced. They've seen a lot and they knew that we were the ones that were going to unlock all this potential and, and they went for it. When you're thinking about scaling, right, that would seem like it'd be a huge challenge, not only in terms of how do you do this, but also the actual physical infrastructure it takes to scale, does that even exist or do you have to start building it yourself? Can you walk us through that? It doesn't exist. Yeah, we're having to build it from the ground up. Not only the technology and the process, but all of the infrastructure. And how did you do that? I mean, we started off with like literally buying like used beer brewing equipment and the local food processing equipment junkyard. And we started putting these things together and, and testing it out and showing like as scrappy as we possibly could. Hey, this is possible. It's not a, that efficient yet because we haven't put a lot of money into it. We're just demonstrating. This is a minimum viable product, essentially. It works. And every step of the way, we're able to raise more and more money and, and then build out a more sophisticated infrastructure, custom stuff. And now we're building what we call the mega ranch. 
and we will be the single largest meat producer in the United States from end to end. It's a one of a kind, never been done before facility. I mean, it's really, really cool. It's about 120,000 square feet. It's awesome. Where were you in your evolution when the pandemic hit? And how did that impact the course of your company's development? We were in like super hyper growth phase. So we got our seed money. And so we had to prove out the concept that what we said we could do was doable and we had to do it fast. And so the biggest challenge for us was, I mean, everything just slowed, right? The whole world went to a standstill, but we didn't have the luxury to stand still. So, you know, we just did whatever we could. Justin and I were like, we'll just go into the lab. We'll just build it ourselves. And I mean, we did all kinds of things to try to continue to pace at which we were moving because we only had a certain set of money and a big goals to hit during that time. And you had to keep going and keep your pace, but the world's pace obviously had changed. You had a great anecdote, right, about getting some materials through, was it Amazon or something? Can you just describe that a little bit? We were trying to move as fast as we possibly can. We didn't have the money to hire like sophisticated fermentation engineers. So we just went on Alibaba and bought a a whole fermentation setup right from China. Never seen it before. We put all of our hope into this one system and pushed by. And it showed up actually the day like the lockdown started. And they were supposed to send out an engineer. It was supposed to be a month this person was going to sit with us and help build it because they know how to build it. Well, they just sent us an email and said, sorry, like lockdown, good luck. And they didn't even give us blueprints. All they gave us was a photo, a grainy photo of the system. And we had scrappy enough, talented enough engineers to actually build it and get it operational. They put it all together. And I mean, this is really complicated. There's wires and pipes going all over the place. Uh, And somehow they put it together and got it running. And we were able to run it just a few times to show that it works and that the technology works. We got the yields we were looking for, the quality of mycelium all worked. And then it just basically started breaking, started like just falling apart. It was really poor steel and, and not well designed, but it was enough to show investors that, hey, there's some hope here. And we were able to raise our next round of funding and build our own custom system. And by that time, were you able to then finally get adequate materials and everything? Or was the world up and running enough where you could get the right materials to grow? Uh, I mean, it's still not up and running completely. Something that we've done pretty unique in the fermentation space is leveraging dairy, dairy engineers and dairy equipment. You can go as high end or as complicated as like pharmaceutical grade. And then there's on the lower end is like beer brewing. And in between is like dairy. And so we've done a unique of using dairy processes that are very sterile, very safe, but are easier to build, less expensive. And there's a lot of dairy engineers and dairy equipment as that industry starts to wane. They're looking for more work and more industries to go into. So they were happy to help us and move fast. It looks like you're going toward largely what you do is direct to consumer. Is that accurate? And like, why the decision to go direct to consumer versus going B2B? We are in Sprouts here locally. So retail is a major part. Because even through retail, it's still a consumer-focused brand versus food service. This has always been an effort to just to get meaty into people's hands. And so which ways are the best? And I think, you know, in some regards, it's a mixed channel. So it's all of the above. Obviously, food service and retail are going to play a major part in in our go-to-market strategy. They both have their pros and cons, and we're going to do both of them. And then D2C online is just a great way to get international. We get a lot of support and enthusiasm from people all across the country. They're like, hey, you know, I 
stop showing me photos. I actually want to try it. And D2C was an, a way for us to actually get full national distribution in a process that we control. So have consumers been pretty amenable to mushroom-based meats, or has there been any kind of questions or pushback? A mix of both. There are some who are just so enthusiastic. I mean, through the roof, this is the coolest thing I've been waiting. I love mushrooms. I love mycelium, mushroom root, nature. And they just are, I mean, it's crazy how excited they are. And then there's other folks, like a a lot of my family who are like, this is kind of cool. All right, I get it. It's natural. But like, I have beef, I have chicken, you know, why do I need this? And so I think there is some education around, hey, this is just one, it's an enjoyable eating experience. It's super nutritious. And you just end there. And then if they want to know more, it's, you know, okay, well, this is more sustainable. This is part of the American food system. And you continue to build up a case for why this is important. Does your dad still have the bison ranch? Yeah. And how does he feel about the meat that you're producing? I mean, they get it. Whenever I go out to Nebraska, they're just like, yes, this is a no brainer. It takes them two and a half, three years to produce a bison that's able to be harvested. It's a ton of work. It's hard on them. It's hard on the land. They're just working super hard and they're struggling. All the ranchers and farmers are barely making it. Then they're like, wait a second, you can produce 45 million pounds and you only have like four operators running that thing and they don't have to like break their back to do it. All they have to do is push a couple buttons. They're like, duh, this is a no brainer. We think we're going to be wildly successful. What's been a harder challenge as you've developed product? Is it flavor or is it mouthfeel? Texture is the hardest piece for the new emerging sort of alternative protein space. I think more and more the companies are getting really good at flavor. Pea and and soy have an off-flavor note that you have to cover up, but they're getting really good at that. It's texture with a simple ingredient list. That's the key to our success that no one's been able to match. We have the texture and it's bland flavor. And then, so it's easy enough to flavor it. If you want to make it taste like a chicken, if you want to taste like steak, pork, fish, carne asada, teriyaki, all you have to do is just add that flavor to it. I wanted to piggyback off of Brett's question about the decision right now to mostly sell your product through your website and maybe think about partnerships with QSRs later on, or I should say, and maybe partnerships with restaurants later on. Is part of that decision process to keep the customer data to yourself? And how important is that data in terms of understanding customer needs and wants as you iterate your product? We love the data for sure. And direct to consumer is a great way to do that. We own the relationship. It's a direct line of communication. It's two-way communication. We get a ton of data. Is a really good tool for a new emerging company with a new product. But ultimately the challenge, we would be scaling as fast as we can. There's a ton of demand and way more demand than we have supply. And that's the reason why it's just taken us a while to get out there. As I mentioned, we're building the infrastructure to do so. And the volumes required to work with these, especially national food service chains or retail chains, are on the orders of tens of millions of pounds. The meat category is just enormous. And so to actually make a big impact on it, you have to think big. You have to build big infrastructure. And that just takes time. Yeah, definitely. It's what a $1 trillion global meat market, right? And you mentioned that you have far more demand than you have supply right now. And yeah, you don't want to be in a position where you have all these great partnerships and then you can't supply them because that's a whole other problem. But with the demand being so high, is there 
always that fear of losing that demand to competitors because there is so much competition out there. And how do you deal with that when balancing, you know, building as fast as you can? You just keep building fast. That's the key to your competitive advantage. As I mentioned, you know, other people are definitely going to enter this space of using mycelium or, or mushroom roots to produce alternative meats. It, it just works really well. So there's going to be others, but there's no infrastructure. They're going to have to build it themselves. And that goes for any sort of alternative protein space. You have to build out the infrastructure. You have to get the supply. It's not as easy as just coding and pushing, you know, print. If any competitor is going to come out there, they've got to be able to catch up. And we're moving about as fast as you can possibly move. And so as long as we don't slow down, I think we can maintain our lead in the space. In terms of having overall impact, is there a thought to ever, even down the line, licensing your technology to big food manufacturers? Because again, they have the scale, they have the infrastructure. You would think that that's how you could have the biggest impact. I cannot wait until the day that we have more bandwidth or capacity than we have demand. And when that day comes, I'm more than happy to help license or work with other partners to be able to produce mycelium. And it will be, you know, I think of my daughter, she's, you know, about to turn two here soon. I'm very confident when she's a teenager, they're going to look back and be like, that was crazy. I can't believe back in the day, you know, you didn't have mushroom root or, or meaty this seems like just a regular part of American and global diet. I truly believe strongly in that. And so we'll be one of several players, and I hope we can influence the creation of this whole new category of food. All right, Tyler, we're going to ask you a series of questions. You are allowed to have one word answers and one word only answers. Steph actually has a question that she's going to interject at some point during this process as well. I'm nervous. Yeah, oh, you should be. It's the most intimidating portion of the podcast. There's actually really scary music that we play over it. I would venture to say it's one of the most intimidating things in the venture world. I'm so glad I signed up to speak on this podcast. <laughs> Perfect. All right. We're going to start off easy. Bison or bison? Bison. In your face, Steph. What will be bigger in the future? Plant-based proteins or cell-based? Plant-based. Do you believe in ghosts? That's very random, Brett. We had somebody believe in Bigfoot earlier on a prior episode. I don't know if you remember, Aditi. I remember that, but there was some sort of connection with Florida or something. Aditi, do not let him out of the lightning round. Tyler, do you believe in ghosts? No, but I want to. Solid answer. Steph, jump in with your question. Tyler, there is a large mushroom at my cabin. What is it? It is a oyster mushroom. Nice. See, now you should go up there and eat it, Steph. It's wild, though. Your dad, for his midlife crisis, opened a farm. What are you going to do for your midlife crisis? Same. Like father, like son. Nice. What's the most important ingredient for the alternative space? Mushroom root. What's holding back the alternative space from already being mainstream, if you don't think it's mainstream, or being more mainstream? Infrastructure, consumer readiness, cost, or access to ingredients, or something else? Cost. I am impressed that that was done in one word. Can you ride a bison? Yes. That's all I got. Full Stack Food is brought to you by the Techstars Farm to Fork Accelerator. Techstars Farm to Fork is a mentorship-driven accelerator program working with the startups that are focused on the food value chain from on-farm to supply chain, manufacturing, all the way to the future of food retail. We provide mentorship, capital, and a network that can help take your startup from where you are today and accelerate it to its next level. If you're an early stage tech founder that has applications into the food system, reach out today to learn more about our program.
Here's this week's Startup Corner. Today I'm here with Jose Alonso, the CEO and co-founder of Caldo. Jose, welcome. What's the problem that you guys are solving? In short, we're helping solve the food service labor crisis and providing some support to really overworked kitchen staff. I mean, originally I learned about the labor issue through personal experience. Growing up, my family ran restaurants. And after a hard pivot in my career from investment banking to working as a line cook in four kitchens, and you better believe I got my ass handed to me. And it wasn't until I started researching labor statistics that I thought, well, this is going to be a huge problem, like perfect storm type of problem. About 80% of restaurants are running and understaffed. And to top it off, I mean, the problem's only getting worse. How are you solving this problem? That's a big problem. It is a big problem. What we want to do is offer automation that supports kitchens in really their most time-consuming, monotonous, and oftentimes difficult to execute tasks. I mean, before we started Caldo, my co-founder had spent many years building out automated manufacturing plants in the food space. So using his technical expertise, we wanted to adapt industrial robotics to fit in the space and environment that's unique to a kitchen. So a lot of food robotic startups have focused on automating the cooking or the plating of meals, but we've actually found a huge amount of labor that takes place even before the restaurant is open. I mean, instead we've focused on the automation of prepping ingredients. So think of weighing each portion of chicken that's gonna be added to your salad, counting the number of shrimp that are gonna be added to your pasta, or simply pre-assembling four or five ingredients that you'll need to hit the saute pan or the wok as soon as orders come in. So, I mean, all this work needs to happen before you show up in a restaurant and place an order. And, And we're talking about six plus hours of daily grueling boring tasks. So, I mean, our system executes this about three times faster than a person. It does exact portion weight every single time, less hands touch your food. And additionally, I mean, we air seal ingredients to maximize freshness and shelf life. So it's really kind of adding some support to the kitchen, but also building a digital ledger that tells you exactly what's going on in the kitchen real time, which is something that's completely missing right now in the restaurant space. How are you going to take over the world? We're launching our first product with a 500 location chain, but really our system's designed to very quickly transition to assembling grab and go salads and sandwiches, particularly for commissary kitchens and grocery retailers that really we're finding are, are looking for opportunities to offer fresher products closer to their customers. And really we're focusing on working with large chains in order to scale quickly and really make an impact. Today I'm here with Ken Chester, the CEO of Bulk Magic. Ken, what's the problem you all are solving at Bulk Magic? First, I can start with a story. So one day when I was a small little kid, you know, I don't know how long ago that was, but I saw my mom putting a ton of bread into the freezer. I was like, mom, this is kind of weird. Why are you doing this? Are you making bread ice cream? And she laughed and she's like, no, not really. It's just there is a, a good deal on bread. I'm like, huh, that's interesting, but it makes sense. So I just kind of put that in the back of my memory bank and essentially forgot about it for years down the road. But then fast forward into the future, you have the pandemic and you have all these, the inflation that we've grown to know and love, perhaps in some way, at least grown familiar with it. And you see how, wait a second, if people could solve for that same issue that I saw way back then, they could make their lives a little bit easier. And I thought, what is that issue? 
Well, if you really boil it down, it's that my mom wanted to buy something in bulk because there was a sale. In other cases, there might have been a bulk discount if she'd buy a certain amount. But there were these limitations. You had spoilage. Of course, the bread was going to mold if she let it out. And then there was storage limitations, like how much could this freezer hold in this weird game of Tetris that was going on here. So the customers got these spoilage and storage limitations to bulk purchasing. And the merchants even have their own limitation. So buying in bulk is something that people want to do for a variety of reasons, but it's hard to do. How are you solving the problem? So one of the issues we thought is like, okay, well, some people are working on making the food last longer. Okay, that's awesome. It's not our ball game, but maybe we could leverage technology to make bulk more you know, feasible for the customers. So they're not going into all those problems we just discussed. And so what we did is we thought, okay, why don't we allow people to buy in massive bulk quantities without worrying about any of those limitations? And so we talked about it for a while within our team. And eventually we just came into this interesting little theory of why not just let them prepay in bulk? And so they're not necessarily taking home, to use the bread example, they're not going to take home like 20 loaves of bread in one day, but they'll prepay for it in exchange for some sort of bulk discount from whoever's selling it. And then they get 20 bread vouchers in their digital wallet that they can then redeem as needed over time. We partner with anyone who's wanting to sell. What's the big vision here? How are you going to take over the world? So what's interesting here, if we're talking taking over the world, is that, yeah, America is known as this place of massive entrepreneurship on the tech side. But when you talk about the small scale brick and mortar entrepreneurs, there's some countries around the world where like 75 percent of the population, some countries more, are entrepreneurs, perhaps micro-entrepreneurs, but they are out of necessity in many cases. Well, instead of micro-credit, we can bring in micro-bulk. And so that's our uh, big global play, is to put this out there and let any entrepreneur get started by leveraging, sell to their friends and family, perhaps at first, hey, you know, buy, you know, uh, 50 tomatoes from me, and you've kind of invested in my company, you've gotten this amazing bulk rate, and you help my business grow. And that's really our big vision to get it out there. So going back to the original question, when will fake meat taste like real meat? Take two. Guys, your thoughts. I mean, it probably already does. But the ones that do actually taste like real meats are really, 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 really expensive. And so nobody actually can try them. So I think we're the technology is there in many cases, but it's just too expensive still. 100% agree. It's all about scalability at this point of anything that's actually scalable doesn't quite taste exactly like what we think of as meat. I think that comes back to the question, though, is do we want an exact replacement or do we want just an alternative protein that tastes good? Well, that is an excellent question to chew on. And maybe we'll do another episode on that. Thanks, guys. But um... (laughs) see you next week. Full Stack Food is produced by Aditi Roy Media.